Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello and welcome to Whores Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. Today we are going to be talking about the Fox sisters who played an important role in the creation of spiritualism in the 1800s. Spiritualism is a movement based on the belief that departed souls can interact with the living. Spiritualists sought to make contact with the dead, usually through the assistance of a medium, a.k.a. a person that can contact the dead directly. Spiritualism should not be confused with spirituality, which is more of a personal experience. Spirituality can be a path that leads a person to know the reason for their existence, or it could be a balance of the mind, body, and soul, and often combines the values and moralities with which a person lives by. So, spiritualism, spirituality, two different things. Got, <laughs> got it. Got it. Check, check, good. Right. Uh, the Fox sisters were famous spirit mediums that helped many people connect with loved ones on the other side. And I actually have never heard of the Fox sisters before. Surprisingly, really? I, I, yes, I don't know how I have not heard of them, but I was watching the Netflix series, the movies that made us, and I watched the Ghostbusters episode. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't seen that show, basically each episode is like a mini documentary about a movie from the 80s or 90s. Um, I hope they make more, though, because it's really good. And I kind of want to see them branch out and do um, other decades as well. But anyways, um, they talk about the history of how a film was made. There's tons of trivia and there's also interviews with cast and crew about the films. So during the Ghostbusters episode, they were talking with Dan Aykroyd, who was talking about the Fox sisters and how his own personal family history with spiritualism and the paranormal helped create the idea for writing Ghostbusters. So that's actually how I heard of the Fox sisters. But um, you should check out that episode if you know you're a Ghostbusters fan because it's it's quite fascinating. Yeah, that role wasn't really a huge stretch for Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> which is kind of cool. <laughs> it is really cool. And uh, we'll talk more about that later. Okay. But first, we're going to talk about the Fox sisters. Awesome. I want to hear what you learned, Sharon. I learned so much. <laughs> Ed- educate us. Educate us. All right. So the Fox sisters were three sisters from New York. Leah Margareta, who was also known as Maggie, and Catherine, who was known as Kate. They also had other siblings as well. Leah was the oldest of the trio. She was born in 1813, along with three other siblings who were born in the 1810s as well. Then their parents separated for some time due to John Fox, their father, being an alcoholic. And then in the 1830s, he sobered up and reconciled with their mother, Margaret. And then Maggie was born in 1833, and Kate was born in 1837. So Maggie and Kate were definitely oops babies. I don't think there was any oops there. I was going to say, I think that was like makeup sex babies. I mean, makeup sex for sure, but like, did they want... Two more children, like at uh, that stage in life. I mean, that's like a thirty. Wait, was that twenty? Twenty year difference between um, Leah and then Maggie, and a 
let's see, 24-year difference between Kate and Leah. So yeah, yeah, but in the 1830s, I don't think they had much of a choice in terms of like birth control options. So this is true. This is true. <laughs> and they needed kids to help on the farm. This is, yes, this is also true. <laughs> So Leah, because she was 50 years older than her sisters, left home at, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Leah, Leah left home in 1845 and she got married and the two younger sisters, Kate, who was then age 11 and Maggie, age 14, moved with their parents to a farmhouse near Hydesville in Wayne County, New York in 1847 a house in which Mrs. Fox soon became convinced was haunted. There was a rumor in town that a peddler had been murdered on the site of the farmhouse at some indeterminate time in the past. Mrs. Fox heard the story and soon began jumping at every noise in the house, from banging doors to creaking timbers. Eventually, the two Fox sisters began using their mom's fear to play pranks on her. Um, This is most definitely what I would have done, too. Yeah, I actually did do that to my mom when we lived in the house we thought was kind of haunted and unfelt. I actually, to this day, still feel bad about it, but it was worth it. Don't feel bad. Um, So, yeah, they discovered that when an apple would fall to the floor, there was a hollow knocking sound that would be made that would drive their mother into a panic. (laughs) And they also realized that their poor mother had no idea that her innocent girls could play on her fears and terrorize her in such a manner. So it was basically all in good fun to them and just, you know, simple teenage pranks until the night of March 31st when everything changed. Mrs. Fox had grown so panicked that she decided to have the girls sleep in her bedroom with her and Mr. Fox. That was the birth control. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Um, At this point, she was seriously sleep deprived and the children didn't seem to realize what sort of state they had put her into. As they lay there, there came a strange, sharp noise as if someone was rapping on wood. Kate and Maggie then started talking to the source of the noises, calling it Mr. Splitfoot and getting it to mimic their claps with knocks. (laughs) Good job, everyone. Um, Their mother began asking it questions and the source replied using two knocks for yes and one knock for no. She determined it was the spirit of the man who was murdered in the house, obviously. I mean, what else could it be? Yeah, right. Then she asked if it would continue to perform if she brought in outsiders. The spirit answered. So, of course. That was a yes, by the way. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for everyone who does not speak knock. (laughs) Of course, there was no spirit as the girls were simply fucking with their mother as they would confess 40 years later. They were making the noises by cracking the knuckles in their toes. Okay. I I can... Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, I can crack my toe knuckles and my... I I constantly am cracking like my finger knuckles and my toe knuckles. They do not make a sound that someone would think would be knocking on wood. They might want to get a doctor to check that out. 
that's that was going to be my question because I knew this was coming eventually. Like, how the hell do you do that so convincingly? But I'm going to let you continue. Maybe something later in the story will. They just had like really loud joints. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I'm <laughs> I'm guessing by the time that they were all old women, all of their their <laughs> their feet were all like curled up and like knotted and gnarled and yeah it, uh, I don't know I don't know okay kinda gross and I don't like feet so like the, that's the story <laughs> in general kind of creeps me out but for a different reason so yes they were using their knuckles and their toes to make the noises and Kate even tried to half confess this to her mother by pointing out that the next day was April Fool's Day and that you know this must be a prank, but Mrs. Fox was too convinced and neither sister can tell the other to stop because, you know, it's kind of fun to terrorize your parents. So Dude. I stopped. <laughs> the whole thing had escalated too far and was about to go completely beyond their control. At first, the neighbors thought the matter was a joke. And ironically, it was the panicked faces of the children that convinced them otherwise. They asked their questions and got their answers in response. One asked more questions about the spirit's murderer and was told that the killer had since died so no justice could be gained. Convenient. Very convenient. I don't know how the spirit would know that, though, that their killer died. Well, yeah, they were hanging out, probably. It's a spirit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're probably like, what's up? Welcome to the club. Why would you want to hang out with your killer? Uh, See, on that side, it doesn't matter. Everybody loves everybody. Maybe they go to the same spirit 7-Eleven. I don't know. The same spirit bar? Yeah. And they, they saw drink. each other in passing. And they drink spirits? Whoa. Oh. Lame, lame, lame joke. Okay, anyways. <laughs> the spirit told them its body was buried in the cellar. And they took it so seriously that on Saturday, they began digging up the cellar. But of course, no body was found. No body? No body. there's nobody there's nobody in this study no i'm gonna let you tell your story sharon sorry it's all right it's it's hard not to reference a clue joke when you hear the word body thank you for the next few days the house was filled with curiosity seekers but with this attention also came skepticism Some locals called them tricksters, and others began to suspect witchcraft was at play. Luckily, they were about 200 years past the uh, witch trials, so (laughs) they were not at any risk to get uh, hung or... um, Set on fire? Burned at the stake or... Drowned. Drowned, or what was the other thing where they put the rocks on you? Oh, they were flattened or something, right? Piling? Something like that. Shoot. We just covered that story not too long ago, and I oh, forgot yeah. what it was called. The one guy, yeah, who they tortured. and Basically, it- they pile rocks on you until you're crushed to death. Yeah. Lovely. All right. Um, the local Episcopal minister even asked the foxes to leave the congregation. The fox parents decided that the best thing to do was send the sisters away. <laughs> you cannot do this anymore. No, I mean, like, kids were basically like cattle in those days. Seriously. Uh, you know what? These kids, they're just not working out for me. Let's yeah. uh, ship them off. Go live with someone else. You're their burden now. Honestly, if that was allowed, I might have actually had kids. <laughs> <laughs> 
If they don't turn out so good, you just they, send them off. Seriously. <laughs> Not my problem anymore. <laughs> oh. All right. Um, the Fox parents decided that the best thing to do was send the sisters away. And so they were sent off to stay with relatives. Maggie went to stay with her brother, David, and Kate went to stay with Leah in Rochester. Leah soon persuaded the young Kate to tell her the truth about what she and Maggie had been up to. And when Leah finally heard the truth, she soon began making plans to take everything to an even greater level. She wanted them dollar dollar bills, y'all. I mean, you can't blame her kind of in a way. It's an opportunity and they probably don't have a whole lot of money. And in those days, it's like a vaudeville act. Like, why not? Right. In those days, a woman was probably either a housewife or (laughs) what are the other options? (laughs) I don't even know. Maybe she had some money from like when her family died or something. So she'd be 25 and an old maid. Yeah. You can either be a housewife or you can inherit money from your family. Maybe. Or, yeah, I don't know. There there wasn't a ton of options for women. So, yeah. Or maybe you'd be a servant or something otherwise. Hustle people in the medium business. Then, you know, that's what you gotta do. You gotta do whatever you could to survive. Make them dollar dollar bills. The late 1840s in Rochester was a hotbed of free thinking. At least by 1840 (laughs) standards. (laughs) In 1847, Frederick Douglass founded an abolitionist newspaper in the town, while in 1848, a women's rights convention was held in the town. I mean, that's, you know, for the time, that is very progressive, I will say. Um, It would also be one of the early sparks that ignited the American female suffrage movement. The town was also home to many religious freethinkers, radical Quakers, and... Swedenborgians among them, (laughs) Um, medium mystic and one of the founders of modern spiritualism, Andrew Jackson Davis, had written a book based on Swedenborg's writings, claiming that the dead were always with the living and that soon open communication would be possible. These ideas were exactly what Leah Fox needed to help enact her plan. I mean, really, the timing couldn't have been more perfect. That's what I'm saying, man. Opportunity. Gotta take it when it presents itself, right? Exactly. The seed was first planted with Isaac and Amy Post, two Quaker friends of Leah's who took in Maggie and Kate when the impoverished Leah could not care for them herself. The Post had lost several children to illness, and so when Leah suggested that Maggie and Kate should try and contact their children's spirits, The older couple agreed. They were skeptical at first, but soon became zealous converts. The posts were involved in both the abolitionist and suffrage movements, and when they were convinced of the girls' talents, they started telling their friends. Soon the requests for seances came flooding in. The posts and their friends were the seed of what became the spiritualist movement, a quasi-religion based on a belief in the persistence of the human soul and the ability to communicate with it after death. Leah herself tried to convince her sisters that the spirits were real and that they were acting through them. Kate accepted this, but Maggie still worried that what they were doing was wrong. This worry only became worse when Leah announced that the spirits wanted them to bring their message to the general public 
for a price. Always a price. The first public demonstration by Maggie Fox took place at the Corinthian Hall in Rochester on November 14th, 1849. The demonstration was open to the public for paid admission, of course. It has been said that the audience was less than sympathetic. Most expected to be present for the unmasking of the girls as frauds or for a bit of fun public shaming. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Representatives of local churches who saw the whole thing as fraudulent at best and heretical at worst were in attendance and disappointingly for the audience, the girls performed their roles flawlessly. So on the second night, at the insistence of a local newspaper, a committee of Rochester's highest ranking officials were on the stage to examine the proceedings. When they failed to detect any fraud, the crowd only grew more incensed. On the final night, the stagehands even discovered that somebody had smuggled in a barrel of warm tar, (gasps) presumably for the traditional tarring and feathering. Oh, my God. When the committee member admitted they could not explain the sounds, a riot broke out, fireworks were thrown, and the girls had to be smuggled out of the back of the theater. Keep in mind, these were still... Like pretty young girls. Yeah. So I mean that's insane. It's it's very heartwarming to see that America's penchant <laughs> for violence hasn't changed much throughout the years. And the crowd was just so pissed that they could not tar and feather a bunch of women. Or that two women either managed to pull something off and like trick them so well they couldn't figure it out or might be legit. Yes. How yes. dare they? How dare they? <laughs> On either on either accusation, I guess I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, I, I get what you're saying. Thank yes, you. Exactly. Yeah. You might think that the events at the Corinthian were a complete disaster, right? Well, not exactly, because in the world of show business, there is no such thing as bad publicity. <laughs> and the frenzied local coverage picked up by the New York dailies made the girls stars. I have to say, I think it's kind of amazing that back in the 1840s, um, I'm kind of impressed with the audience. Normally, I, I would have assumed that they would all have been like, oh my God, this is amazing. But no, they were like, you are frauds and we're pissed that we can't find proof of your frauds, but we know that you're frauds. And I, I actually give the audience more credit than I expected to on that. Why do you give them credit for wanting to... No, no, no. I don't, I'm not saying I don't give them credit for wanting to tar and feather them. I'm just <laughs> saying that they were way more skeptical than I would have expected. Oh, because you think everyone in the 1840s is just like a bunch of dumb yokels who think that like magic is everywhere. I mean, this isn't like caveman days. No, no, no. I know that. But like... <laughs> it's not like discovering fire. Honestly, I think considering that this was after... Thus, like the Salem witch trials and, you know, after discussing that like 200 years earlier, I think America matured slightly since then. And maybe they were more skeptical, which is good because they could have went in the other direction where they were like, they're witches, (laughs) like literally grabbed them off the stage and like stoned them in the town square or something. So I still think it's more about the fact that they were too women doing something that the audience either couldn't figure out how they were doing it or that they were legit and that it was more about the fact that they were just women that were good at what they were doing but that's just me 
Yeah, I'm sure they didn't like that. And it also could have had to do with uh, maybe some of the religious tones going on then, you know, where maybe they thought that that went against Christianity, which actually I think we do get into a little bit. I I was going to say that's been the whole argument about the disclosure movement with UFOs is that people have always said that if they release that information and say, oh, yeah, no, we've known there have been UFOs forever, that like the public would lose their shit and it would be chaos. Yeah, it would totally change religion completely. All right. Well, let's let's see if we can answer. Um, let's put a pin so, in that, though. <laughs> yeah. Let's see if we can answer some of those questions um, in the rest of this. Um, so in 1850, the girls went on tour through upper New York State before going down to New York City. In the smaller surroundings, with the appropriate atmosphere, their seances were far more convincing than they had been at the Corinthian. Even the journalists who attended were convinced, and some of the papers, which had been denouncing the girls as frauds, published retractions. Andrew Jackson Davis, the mystic who had predicted the sisters, even gave them his seal of approval. Spiritualism was now a phenomenon. Mediums started coming out of the woodwork everywhere, and seances became fashionable and popular. Many of these new mediums were more showy than the sisters. For example, trance mediums would channel spirits and produce ectoplasm and all kinds of other showy effects. Still, the sisters, as the original mediums, remained key figures in the spiritualist movement. Since they were now considered to be credible and respectable, in September, Kate and Maggie left New York, while Leah remained in New York and got remarried to a man named Calvin Brown in 1851. In 1852, Kate and Maggie were performing in Philadelphia. Among the audience at one of their shows was a young doctor and Arctic explorer named Alicia Kane. See, women were housewives. Men were doctors and Arctic explorers. I was just going to say, damn, he's a young doctor and exploring the Arctic? My God. (sighs) He had just returned from his first Arctic expedition, and when he heard of the sisters, he was convinced they were frauds. Get in line, buddy. (laughs) He was not alone in his thoughts either. Funny you should say that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even though things appeared to be going well for the sisters, there were still a lot of skeptics who were not entirely convinced of their act. In fact, several people even realized that the wrapping was caused by them cracking their toes, a physician, several priests, and three university professors all had articles published in newspapers putting this explanation oh. forward, but all were ignored. Alicia Kane went to every one of their dates in Philadelphia to try and see what the trick was, and he never figured it out, but he did figure out that he found Margaret very attractive. Hey! <laughs> I just figured it out. Uh, somehow he wrangled an introduction to her and the two began a somewhat fraught courtship the spiritualist did not want one of their star mediums marrying an unbeliever while his rich roman catholic family didn't want him involved with this heresy In 1853, he set out on his second expedition, one which ended in 1855, with a ship locked in ice and an 83-day march across the snow to safety. Wow. 
The experience wrecked his health and he returned to New York a broken man. There, he and Maggie were secretly married and he published a book about his exploration. In 1857, while on a trip to Havana to recover his health, he died. (laughs) Sorry for laughing, but I mean, you know, it was 1857. He'd be dead anyway. Wow, Havana, you you didn't recover his health. He just died. (laughs) They just gave him a bunch of cigars. They're like, here, smoke this. You'll feel better. In accordance with his wishes, Maggie had converted to Catholicism, but when his family refused to recognize the marriage, he left her without any means of support. She was forced to return to the spiritualist, and unfortunately, Maggie developed a drinking problem due to all of these hapless events. Well, I guess we found out what happens to women when they don't have a husband or they're not a wife or mother. Oh, so glad I was not born in the 1800s. (laughs) No shit. Kate had been left to be brought up by Horace Greeley, founder and editor of the New York Tribune and also a devout spiritualist. She attended a private school in New York, but her home life was far from happy. Greeley's wife was living with mental illness and broken by grief over a dead son whose death was also what made Greeley open to spiritualism. Once Kate was finally old enough to get out of the house, she went back on the stage as a medium. Her act had developed from the simple rapping to the full production of a typical stage medium of the day. Her seances gradually came to feature not only rappings, but music. (laughs) Sorry. Now I'm picturing like a woman in like Victorian clothing, like rapping, like, you know, hip hop. (laughs) You get it. You all know what I'm talking about. Shut up. (laughs) It's a variety Um, show now. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. So not only rapping, like rapping, but music, materializations, spirit writing, and other manifestations. Kate was especially notable for her ability to receive one message through automatic writing while simultaneously giving voice to another. Wow, that she takes was, coordination. I'm sorry. Writing and speaking at the same time? Well, automatic writing and speaking in a different voice. Yeah. True, true, true. Um, she was a true celebrity medium, and she took full advantage of her celebrity status, developing, like her sister, something of a drinking problem. <laughs> I don't know how that is taking advantage of her celebrity status. I mean, maybe... She could just afford the good liquor. I don't know. Um, In fact, some of Alicia's letters to Maggie while he was on his expedition warned her to watch out for her sister's drinking. Kate would have only been a teenager at the time. Oh, geez. So that's actually pretty sad. Yeah. Leah's second husband died in 1853, and in 1857, she married a wealthy banker named Daniel Underhill. Daniel was a spiritualist, and the pair of them soon had a solid control over the new movement. In 1864, she found out quite how serious her sister's drinking problems were and arranged for them to go into rehab. However, their father's death in early 1865 and their mother's death later in the year disrupted these plans. Kate did go through the process, but Maggie never did. 
She gave up on getting Alicia's family to recognize their marriage, and in 1865, she published his letters to her, possibly somewhat altered as a book titled The Love Life of Dr. Kane. This book flopped, unfortunately, and she was forced to accept Leah's offer to go back on stage as a medium in order to support herself. Son of a bitch. In 1871, Kate went to England, officially as a missionary of the Church of Spiritualism. She was 34 at the time and doubtless saw this as a way to escape Leah's tight control. In fact, Leah had engineered the trip as a way to separate Kate from Maggie in order to avoid her relapsing into alcoholism. There she met and married a London solicitor named Henry Jenkins. He was a barrister and a spiritualist, and the two had a happy marriage. They had two children, both boys. Some accounts have it that the pair moved back to New York in 1875, while other accounts say that Maggie came out to London to visit them in 1876. It may be that the 1875 trip was just a passing visit. It's unlikely that a barrister that was trained in English law would have wanted to move to America where it would have been hard for him to find work. However, it's definitely true that in 1881, Kate's domestic bliss came to an end when her husband died. I think the second side story to the Fox sisters is what the hell is happening to all their husbands? Yeah, like I've actually, I, I had I thought of it, I should have started a running count at the beginning of this because I think that's a we're lot on of dudes. five now. Jesus. I think, I think, uh, yeah, I think we've had five dead husbands so far between three sisters. Wow. And there might be more. <laughs> right? We're not done. So, <laughs> um, Kate was back in New York in 1885 when Leah published The Missing Link in Spiritualism, a revisionist history of the Fox sisters and their mediumship. The pressure was on to keep Maggie and Kate in line. And when she found out that Kate had started drinking again, she began making moves to take her children away from her. It was this that prompted Kate and Maggie to band together and decide to expose the frauds they had perpetuated since they were children. At the New York Academy of Music on October 21st, 1888, Maggie sat on stage and described, then demonstrated, how she and her sister had created the famous raps. She denounced Leah as having been in on the fraud from almost the beginning. Then thanked God that she had this opportunity to expose the fraud. To quote Maggie directly, she said, quote, There is no such thing as a spirit manifestation. That I have been mainly instrumental in perpetrating the fraud of spiritualism upon a too confiding public. Many of you already know. It is the greatest sorrow of my life. When I began this deception, I was too young to know right from wrong. End quote. And Kate had said, quote, I regard spiritualism as one of the greatest curses that the world has ever known, end quote. I think it's kind of funny that she thanked God. Yeah, right. <laughs> but is also saying, no, there's no spirits and stuff. But hey, thank God. No, she, as I explained earlier, spiritualism... I know. And spirituality are different. So it's but not... Still. It's kind of ironic a little bit. A little bit to me yeah i agree all right you're allowed to have your thoughts <laughs> oh, today 
<laughs> All right. For now. The papers declared the demonstration a death blow to spiritualism, but ironically, the movement proved impossible to lay to rest. Instead, it cracked. One side declared the sisters entirely motivated by spite against Leah and making false confessions. The other, in a classic defensive move used by mediums down the years, said that the sisters were genuine mediums who were being directed by the spirits in their imposture. The real issue, of course, was Leah's control over the movement and the politics around that with Maggie and Kate used as a pretext. In 1890, Leah in her late 70s passed away. The year before, she had managed to pressure Maggie into recanting her confession, and Maggie came out publicly to say that the confession itself was a deception. But she was never able to drag Kate back into the fold. Sadly, Kate herself died in 1892 of kidney disease, and Maggie died the following year of a heart attack. Maggie was a pauper at the time of her death, but thanks to donations from friends, she was buried next to her sister in Cypress Hill in Brooklyn. Various descendants of the spiritualist movement remain active to this day, and more than a few people still insist that the Foxes were genuine mediums. There was also one slightly odd coda to the whole affair. Though the people who excavated the Fox family home cellar in 1848 never found the body of Mr. Splitfoot, Children playing in the cellar of the by then abandoned house found a collection of bones. The papers were hugely excited by this, with the Boston Journal giving an entire account of the skeleton being found behind a false wall. Sadly for true believers, an analysis of the bones by a physician in 1909 proved them to be a mismatched collection that was a mixture of chicken and human, with the latter probably scavenged from a nearby graveyard. Some local prankster was the general conclusion that was reached. This final fraud was the cherry on top of this unbelievable story. And it's a little strange how some people can want to believe in a lie so much that even when the liar admits it, they still believe. Ooh, oddly relevant, Sharon. <laughs> That's the thing. So many of these stories, when we research them, even though they were hundreds of years ago, so oddly relevant to today. Makes me kind of doubt evolution. <laughs> <laughs> ah, which I don't, though, of course. I was being silly. Anyways, so what happened to spiritualism? Did the exposure of the Fox sisters as frauds dampen the mystique and curious draw of people to spiritualism? Well, not so much. Six years before Maggie's confession, in London in 1882, the Society for Psychical Research was founded to examine paranormal phenomena using rigorous and unbiased scientific methods of investigation. The society also set up a committee on haunted houses, Ooh. which um, how do I join that committee? Right. right. I want to be on that committee. The movement quickly spread throughout the world, though only in the United Kingdom did it become as widespread as it was in the United States. Spiritualist organizations were formed in America and Europe. Spiritualism was mainly a middle and upper class movement and especially popular with women. American spiritualists would meet in private homes for seances, 
at lecture halls for trans lectures, at state or national conventions, and at summer camps attended by thousands. Wow. How fun would that be to go to a spiritualism summer camp? That would make a great slasher movie. That would be a good slasher movie or like a good, just a good ghost story. Yeah. I heard he had a hook on his foot. <laughs> All right. You can't keep using that joke every episode. It Mindy. never gets old. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. Mainstream newspapers even started reporting ghost stories of ghosts and hauntings Whoa. as they would any other news story. An account in the Chicago Daily Tribune in 1891 tells of a house believed to be haunted by the ghosts of three murder victims seeking revenge against their killer's son, who was eventually driven insane. That would also be a good horror movie. Many families having no faith in ghosts thereafter moved into the house, but they all soon moved out again. Hmm. In the 1920s, many psychic books were published of varied quality. Such books were often based on excursions initiated by the use of Ouija boards. And during the 18 nope, and during the mm. 1920s, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of the world-famous detective Sherlock Holmes, and also an avowed spiritualist, traveled around the world lecturing on the comfort grieving family members could find in a séance parlor. In his talks, Doyle told of the next world as it had been described to him by spirits during seances. He assured his audiences that the departed all agree that passing is usually both easy and painless and followed by an enormous reaction of peace and ease. Meanwhile, spiritualism skeptics attempted to expose fake mediums. The world-famous magician Harry Houdini made it his life's work to expose the perpetrators of this most monstrous fiction. Even though he always entered a seance with an open mind, Houdini declared, after 25 years of ardent research and endeavor, I declare that nothing has been revealed to convince me that intercommunication has been established between the spirits of the departed and those still in the flesh. The movement became extremely individualistic, with each person relying on his or her own experiences in readings to discern the nature of the afterlife. Organization was therefore slow to appear, and when it did, it was resisted by mediums and trans lecturers. Most members were content to attend Christian churches, and particularly Universalist churches harbored many spiritualists. The practice of medianship enjoyed a rebirth in the 1970s as a significant activity within the New Age movement, which looked to the coming of an idealistic culture in the 21st century. New Age channelers claimed to contact a variety of disembodied entities from ascended masters who were basically spiritual beings who were believed to guide human destiny to extraterrestrials. And like the spiritualists, the dead. While the New Age movement disappeared in the 1990s, channeling continued to enjoy a large appeal. So I couldn't really find much more about the spiritualism movement after this time period. Um, there still are a lot of organizations around the world today that are devoted to psychic research, practicing mediums and the like. But when I was searching for spiritualism in the 21st century, Every article that I found took me 
to spirituality, which I already explained is different. Mm -hmm. So I don't really think the spiritualist movement is as widespread and as active as it was previously, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't think that it's like even called spiritualism. I can't even now talk. Now it's called Ghost Hunter. <laughs> well, I was actually going to make that point, but I was going to wait a bit because you started to talk about how there were societies that were using actual like scientific data to train yeah. measure stuff. And I was going to be like, and where was the birth of Ghost Hunters? But uh, the TV show. <laughs> yeah. Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures, but, like, all those most shows. People, I feel like spiritualism now are pe- like more general people like ourselves or like our friends who like read tarot or do that stuff on their own it's it doesn't have a name and there's not like a group that identifies so yeah I guess the the name of like the movement of spiritualism has definitely it's not really a thing but bits of it exist throughout society is what I'm fucking trying to say Jesus well to counter your points from earlier about her you know saying thank god but not believing in spiritualism i believe in spiritualism but i don't believe in god so and i'm not like a hundred percent convinced that spiritualism exists but i'm honestly i'm more open to the fact that ghosts exist and uh paranormal entities exist and 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 things like that um and communicating with the dead could be possible and energy going on but i don't believe in like a christian god at all so i mean it goes both ways i guess yeah i mean i agree with that too i mean the christian god is a very specific thing i mean you can but you can believe in like some sort of quote-unquote higher power or whatever right and that that's still different than a christian god yeah i mean i don't even know if i believe in that really i'm, I'm not against it i'm not like no 100 there is nothing right. else out there but i also personally don't believe in it i believe in energy and i believe in karma and I believe that ghosts probably exist just based on everything I've experienced in my life. And stories that we've heard from people and Oh yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. That. I would yeah, consider totally. myself to be spiritual. I do not consider myself to be a spiritualist. Interesting. Well, yep. See? I mean, I'm not gonna sit at a, at a seance or, you know, try and like conjure ectoplasm or anything like that. <laughs> Speaking of ectoplasm, um, I did want to revisit a few things. So I looked up how spiritualists manifested ectoplasm because, you know, when we think of ectoplasm, we think of like Slimer from the Ghostbusters. He slimed me. Yeah. So in spiritualism, ectoplasm is said to be formed by physical mediums when they're in a trance state. And material is excreted from their bodies in like a gauze-like substance from different orifices on the medium's body. And spiritual entities are said to drape this substance over their non-physical body, enabling them to interact in the physical and real universe. Some accounts claim that ectoplasm begins clear and almost invisible, but then darkens and becomes visible as the psychic energy becomes stronger Other accounts state that in extreme cases, ectoplasm will develop a strong odor. Um, Maybe that's because it's coming out of random orifices. Just saying. Yeah. Um, According to, sorry. 
According to some mediums, ectoplasm cannot occur in light conditions, uh, light being in, you know, like sunlight conditions as the ectoplasmic substance would disintegrate. Ah, so that's why seances are always, they shut the lights off, maybe have some candles lit. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So ectoplasm on many occasions has been proven to be fraudulent. Uh, I'm going to say probably more occasions than not. Um, Many mediums have used methods of swallowing and regurgitating cheesecloth, textile products smothered with potato starch, and in other cases, the ectoplasm was made from paper, cloth, and egg white or butter muslin. No, thank you. Why would they just, why would they say, oh, I'm going to swallow this cheesecloth just to make, uh, it's so ridiculous. It is, and it's gross, and ugh. You got to make that money. You got to convince people. Yeah, but. Who was the first one to do that? That's a whole other episode, probably. I wonder if we even would find that out at this point. Oh, yeah, I I don't think they would know the origins of that. So the other thing I wanted to go back and revisit is Dan Aykroyd's family. Yeah. So this comes from todayifoundout.com. All the other stuff I mentioned, we will have the links in our show notes. Um, That came from a wide variety of sources. Uh, I'm not going to list all of them, but they will be in our show notes if you want to uh, do some more research. But Dan Aykroyd's great-grandfather was actually a spiritualist who regularly conducted seances at the family home where Dan grew up. Shortly after Dan was born, according to family lore, he was visited by his deceased great-grandparents. Aykroyd says, quote, My mother speaks about a time when she was nursing me and an old couple came to the end of the bed. The image faded away she pulled out an album and saw it was my great-grandfather and his wife coming to approve the new child, end quote. As a child, Aykroyd was regaled by tales from his father of his great-grandfather's seances, including that the family even employed a medium who would channel a variety of people. His father's fascination with the paranormal was so great that in 2009, his father, Peter Aykroyd, published what has been described as an encyclopedic book on the subject. The book is titled A History of Ghosts, The True Story of Seances, Mediums, Ghosts, and Ghostbusters. As of 2016, when this article was written, Dan Aykroyd was still living in his family home. Not sure if he still resides there, but I can't imagine he would want to part with that i think that, that the house. uh the crystal vodka affords him many homes probably oh yeah this is not his only home Aykroyd has described it as having a mind-blowing amount of spiritual activity and numerous friends and relatives who have spent the night there have later reported feeling invisible hands pulling off their sheets at night kind of like the scene from the original ghostbusters movie right Um, Eckerd's paranormal experiences are not limited to the old farmhouse, though. While living in his former home in California, which had once belonged to Mama Cass, Eckerd had a number of experiences, including stating that, quote, a ghost certainly haunts my house. It once even crawled into bed with me. The ghost also turns on the Stairmaster and moves jewelry across the dresser. 
I'm sure it's Mama Cass because you get the feeling it's a big ghost. End quote. Always the comedian. Always the comedian. Those are his words, not mine. Noting that he is not particularly strong as a clairvoyant, Ackroyd has said that his most frequent paranormal experiences come in the form of vivid dreams of lost friends and that he often feels his friend John Belushi's energy coming back. Aww. Familiar to any fan of the movie, Ackroyd has acknowledged that these experiences and stories were part of his inspiration for Ghostbusters. The idea itself came from a combination of him watching old Bowery Boys comedy Ghost Chasers and having read an article on the relationship between parapsychology and quantum physics in the American Society of Psychical Research Journal. That sounds... They use that in the movie. Yes, they do use that in the movie. Uh, That is a mouthful. That is a mouthful. You did very well with that. (laughs) I do not think I'm smart enough to read anything like that (laughs) and and comprehend even like a basic understanding of what I'm reading. Um, Realizing how much fun comedic ghost hunting could be, as Ackroyd later recalled, he thought, let's redo one of those old ghost comedies, but let's use the research that's been done today. Even at that time, there was plausible research that could point to a device that could capture ectoplasm or materialization, at least visually. The classic film we know today was a departure from Ackroyd's first draft. The first draft, the Ghostbusters used magic wands instead of proton packs Mm. and traveled through time and other dimensions, hunting ghosts instead of just being in New York City. The film's director and producer, Ivan Reitman, insisted on several changes to the original script, and Ackroyd enlisted the help of Harold Ramis to rewrite the screenplay. Thank you, Ivan Reitman and Harold Ramis, with all due respect (laughs) to Dan Ackroyd. (laughs) Although they envisioned the movie would star Belushi, Eddie Murphy, and John Candy, Belushi's death, Eddie Murphy being too busy with Beverly Hills Cop, And John Candy, likewise being unavailable, resulted in a few final changes being made, paving the way for Bill Murray's iconic portrayal of Peter Venkman, a role that was originally supposed to go to Belushi. As for whether or not any of the other original Ghostbusters shared Ackroyd's views on the paranormal, Ackroyd stated, Harold Ramis was a complete non-believer, skeptic, and agnostic full-on. Billy, of course, is Irish, and he knows ghosts exist, and sometimes the dead do linger in the land of the living. Ivan Reitman, he's Jewish, so he knows there's a lot of paranormal in the Kabbalah. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Ackroyd's unusual interests are not limited to the paranormal. He is also a member of the Mutual UFO Network, also known as MUFON, Ackroyd is also fascinated by the subject of extraterrestrials, believing they are already living here on Earth, and he stated that he thinks they want nothing to do with us because of our propensity for violence. He said, quote, they are disgusted with us, and rightly so, because we are a depraved, disgusting species, end quote. I'm going to say I agree with that 100%. Well, at least... The last sentence, I don't know if I necessarily believe that there's aliens living on Earth with us, but yes, I think humans are a depraved, disgusting species. Um, Just as a quick side note, 
Aykroyd's involvement with MUFON is actually really fascinating to hear about. And I would encourage anyone interested to look up interviews with him. He has actually had, according to him, some really like real sounding experiences with men in black, with UFO stuff. It's kind of incredible. So just saying. Ackroyd's an interesting dude. <laughs> he is very interesting, and I've heard a few of his stories, and I mean, they sound convincing. Yeah, and I like that he takes that attitude kind of, too, where he's like, I don't know what it was. I can just tell you what I experienced and what I know based on what I've experienced. Like, and I, that's awesome. But anyway, good job, Sharon. Thank you. I do wonder, though, if the Fox sisters had horrible arthritis in their late years because <laughs> Jesus that, that uh, oh. it just grosses me out thinking of someone popping their toe joints or whatever so loud that it could sound like a knock or a rap Ugh. I agree all right well thank you all for listening to us if you are a practicing medium or a spiritualist we would love to have you on the show Ooh. to talk to us yes you can write to us at whorestalkhor at gmail.com you can also write to us with any episode ideas, uh, recommendations on what to watch. If you have any of your own ghost stories, true crime stories, UFO stories, uh, whatever you want us to read on our show, please write to us. If you're a member of MUFON, feel free to, you could be anonymous, but feel free to write to us. Sure. <laughs> um, please also subscribe to us, rate and review us. It helps us get more exposure in the iTunes and Spotify worlds. Uh, if you're able to, please join our Patreon and you'll get early access to episodes, see exclusive posts, and maybe even get some cool shit sent to you in the mail. And speaking of cool shit, uh, quick shout out to Addie. I hope you're, I'm saying your name right. From Alma Curiosa, a fantastic shop in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Chicago. Um, whom I And Addie, I randomly met and chatted with briefly a few weeks ago about the Fox sisters. And I said, hey, we're about to do an episode about, about the Fox sisters and other creepy stuff. So if you're listening, I hope you enjoyed the show. And to everyone listening... As usual, please be kind to each other. Please stay safe out there. And as always, thanks, thanks for, for getting, getting creepy, creepy with, with us. us. Sharon, do you want a beer? Uh, oh, my God.